Hello and welcome to Cruise Club. We've got the need, the need to podcast. This is episode five, Risky Business from 1983. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And before we get to our two guests for this episode, mm. important to note, this is our podcast album art disgustingly stole it from Risky Business. Oh, yeah, so, the, uh, the sunglasses. We are there already, the Wayfarers. And then number two, I had a number two, and I don't know what it was. All right. Uh, I never saw this movie before, though, and I love it. Oh, well, welcome it's to the It's a real, club. real weird movie, uh, <laughs> and I can't wait to talk about it. With us first, you may know him. So if you listen to the Tom Tom Club in its entirety, the Tom Hanks and the Tom Cruise side, both of those sides, you already know our first guest from both episodes of Bosom Buddies. But if you only listen to Tom Cruise, the Cruise Club podcast, you may not know him. He is the host of the High School Slumber Party podcast here on the Cage Club Podcast Network. We have Brian Rodriguez. Hello, Brian. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm not going to use my TV expertise today, but <laughs> ready to have my high school expertise. Like It's one or the other. I don't know, Brian. What TV show was Bronson Pinchot once in? Perfect Strangers. See, there you go. It came in handy. And also, here's, a, here's another po- here's a pop quiz for you. Which... TV show was Perfect Strangers referenced in in the last five years, like sort of like as a joke, but then became a kind of a serious through line. I don't know. Tell me. Can I, can I answer? You can. The Leftovers. You got it. Uh, Mark okay. Baker. There is a throwaway joke in the uh, one of the first episodes that all four of the people, all four of the main people in Perfect Strangers get raptured or get taken or whatever the, you know go away, disappear, and then it sort of evolves into the thing that, like, becomes the basis of an entire episode, which is incredible. Like, it's it's so good. Um, the whole show is so good, and, you know, that's a whole other podcast. Also with us today, we have, he's been on our Too Fast, Too Forever podcast, he's been on Cage Club with us, he is the uh, creator, the mastermind behind Numlock News, the only newsletter, actually, that's a lie, I get my boss's newsletter too, the only newsletter I subscribe to who comes from someone who does not pay me my salary, we have Mr. Walt Hickey. Hello, Walt. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, you guys know how much I love being here. Uh, I really, really enjoy the podcast, and I was super thrilled to come back. Thank you for being here. We are thrilled to have both of you here to talk about Risky Business, a movie that I said I have never seen before. Hmm. And, Mike, last week yep. when we guessed, or two weeks ago, whenever whenever, whenever we guessed, I guess it was last week. Yeah, it was on... Um... The, the party, Mazes, the Mazes and Monsters Mazes episode. and Monsters, yeah, you and Chris Podcast guessed what this was about. And I, I kind of got it right, but there is way more than I you got, said. You got a little bit. You're on the right track. On My right guess track. was that the parents go away, check, and that he throws a party, check, and that was the entire plot of the oh, movie. Well, no, you also said that he would get involved with an older woman. Well, that's, yes, that's because Larson uh, told me that. Put so. that in your head. Yeah. Yes, um, which is kind of true. Oh, here's the other thing I wanted to say before we get any further. I don't know if any of you, did any of you listen to, uh, or I guess watch when I was on HBO, the Ricky Gervais podcast? The animated one? Yeah. The, yes. No, I didn't even know it existed. I'm kind of happy about that. Ricky Gervais was, I guess, the first like celebrity podcaster. Like he was the first person who was already famous and then, you know, had a very successful podcast. Now I don't think it's worth you know listening to because uh, Ricky Gervais's we sort of I think have a collective Ricky mm-hmm. Gervais fatigue. I think uh, the show with Carl going around the world might be worth. And it even abroad, yes. So yeah. that's I'm glad you bring up Carl because the one thing that I knew, quote unquote, knew about Rebecca De Mornay came from that show. Carl Pilkington, I think, is trying to describe a movie. Or he's trying to come up with a movie, and it stars Rebecca De Mornay and Clive Owen, whom he calls Clive Warren. 
and he basically describes what becomes a Black Mirror episode. Uh, so there's like all these things. Like if you search Carl Pilkington, Rebecca Dormornay on Google, it's just like Carl Pilkington uh, predicted three episodes of Black Mirror a decade before <laughs> they aired. So that's you know that's worth looking into because Carl is wonderful. That show is basically just Ricky and uh, Stephen Merchant poking at Carl Pilkington until he says something stupid. Like, that was my entire history with Rebecca De Mornay, and I knew that wow. she was, like, a person. Hand that rocks the cradle? Nothing? I've, I've never Ever? seen... I was zero of 40 I, movies of I hers keep on Letterboxd. Speaking of 40, I keep forgetting that I'll be 40 this year, and yes. you will not, and that I just grew up with this whole other <laughs> set of movies <laughs> and that, that I've seen. I need you to remember, as we learned or we discussed in a Cage Club Revisited recently, that I am in the before sunset period of my life, and you are in the before midnight period of your life. Correct. So it's there a very different... Good Wait, call. Good call. When did life periods turn into Twilight books? I don't understand. What the hell? No, no, no. They're Linklater movies. Oh, okay. Richard Linklater, Julie Delpy, Ethan Hawke. Come on, man. I don't know. The only You know the only movies from that director that I watch. The ones where the girls stay the same age. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, I didn't. I never knew Rebecca DeMornay. All I know now about her is that she's beautiful, uh, that she's good in this movie. This was supposed to be, Mike, if you remember, the Diane Lane part when Tom Cruise tried to recruit oh, yeah. her while they were filming The Outsiders, and her dad said, you're not playing a 20-year-old hooker. No way. That's probably good because within a minute of Rebecca DeMornay showing up, she is fully nude. And I was like, oh, huh. All right. I guess that's where we're going here. But, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess before we go further, Walt, had had you seen this movie before? I'm assuming so, but I don't want to assume too much. Yeah, I had actually not seen this before. I mean, I feel like everybody who has just kind of inhabited the like vague cultural conversation has absolutely seen the Tom Cruise uh, like slide in. And then the, that's the risky business bit. Right. But I had actually never seen the movie proper. I had kind of gone into it with absolutely no expectations. I didn't really know what was going to happen. And I was like really, really pleasantly surprised. I kind of, uh, I'm happy you guys are doing this series because I definitely consider myself a person who, if not likes, at least is fascinated by Tom Cruise. And I think that this was such a a good look at what he's about and what was so interesting about him early on in his career and then eventually what became kind of the crux of the cruise, you know? So um, I really enjoyed it. I did not know what to expect and I, I thought it was great. And so I would say in general, I liked it. Yeah. I'm That's glad that great. you enjoyed it. Uh, Brian, had you seen it before? I don't know. Like, it was one of these movies <laughs> where if I'd seen it, it was just on TV and I wasn't really paying attention. And I purposely avoided it when I started my podcast. I'm really surprised in this day and age, you like basically all of you guys haven't had this movie spoiled all the way through like didn't know what it was all about like well i knew what it was about i just you know never really like focused or concentrated on it and if i saw it it was probably like in high school or college yeah that's when i saw it in high school on cable late at night you know (laughs) the way i guess you know it's intended to first be discovered (laughs) i mean it's a movie that i bought on blu-ray i was looking like six years ago for five dollars and i i unsealed it tonight Wow. Uh, so that it's been a long time coming, I guess, for this. I knew it was sort of like a landmark, kind of not historic movie. Well, I guess it's a big Cruise term, performance, it's a, I, you know, like... Mike, I can't believe we were talking with Larson, I think, or maybe it was the last episode, the Mazes and Monsters episode. They're already all blending, blurring together. We were talking about dancing scenes. We were no, it was with Larson because losing it, and we we're talking about the dancing losing scene, it. and you said you couldn't remember a, a dancing scene in here, and I was like, how is that? Because like even when you oh. watch it here, it's like it is. Uh, 
like what was saying, this is this is the one scene everybody knows. I was semi joking during that episode. I was oh just, okay, I was, okay. I wasn't being entirely serious though. I was just trying to get get it out there. But no, no. I mean, like that's funny you bring that up though, because watching it this time, I'm wondering what's the more iconic song, the uh, old time rock and roll or something in the air tonight? Old the time train rock and roll scene. Old time like, rock and roll definitely. Well, and, and I don't know anymore. In the air tonight has sure. too much of a Miami Vice connotation. But this was before Miami Vice. Yeah, the soundtrack is great. It's super duper 80s. It absolutely sets a mood. Um, it, it's very entangled with its place and time. And I was like really, really kind of blown away by it. Yeah, Hungry Heart. Yeah, right? There's like a Springsteen song in here. Dance, music, sex, romance. You got uh, the Talking Heads Swamp. You got you got a lot. Like, this is a great soundtrack. Absolutely. You got uh, Tangerine Dream doing the score. Like, the, the music in this is on point. Oh, I we're, know. The we're score. definitely going to come back to that. Uh, in the awards, but you know, Brian, this this apparently I looked it up. This preceded the Miami Vice episode by a year or more. Doesn't matter. The Miami Vice episode <laughs> is that's the pilot. It's the most iconic, one of the most iconic pilots, certainly for a drama. One of the first TV shows to ever feature a song in it, like a pop song in it. You know, Phil Collins later guest starred on the show. To me, it's definitely first Miami Vice before this film, especially when you have another song in this that really, like, everyone remembers from the movie. So there is a lot of wild trivia on IMDb about this movie, but one of the things said that that whole dance scene to old-time rock and roll was just improvised. It was just, quote, dance to rock music was all that was in the script. So that was all him just That helps when you're the writer-director, when you can just write that and then <laughs> figure it out later. <laughs> so there is wild... Do we, when do we want to get into the insane quotes that people have said about Tom Cruise in this movie. Do we want to do that now or later or throughout? You mean like behind the scenes stuff? That, yes. That during the filming of this? Yes. No, let's hear him now. Let's get it out of the way. I feel like so much of what Tom Cruise's movies are about is Tom Cruise and the trivia behind it. So I, I would actually love to hear some details on behind him. Most of this is bad. I'll just say that up front. Most oh, of this really? is bad. So a lot of so a lot of this comes from Bran- uh, Bronson Pinchot. So there was a uh, hmm. 2009 interview with the AV Club. Uh, where he said a bunch of things. Apparently, he would just Tom Cruise, and then I I also feel like, and this this is coming from nothing. That mm-hmm. I don't know if I believe Bronson Pinchot. Yeah, you know where this is coming from for me. When we just did all those Amy Heckerling uh, movies for Cinemakers and found out that he was kind of a jerk off boyfriend to her for a lot of years and stuff. And yeah, had like a real diva attitude and all that shit. Like, I, I mean, I like his work, but I'm not so sure about his word right now. <laughs> Two things that Bronson Pinchot said. Number one, uh, Tom Cruise would only addresses. Fellow actors by their characters' names, which is I don't I mean, feel like we get that sense that he's like a Daniel Day Lewis, like Sean Penn, and during those days. But I got Sean Penn for every too, so we're gonna get to there eventually too. Yikes! But Bronson Pinchot also said this is super weird, and I guess kind of it ties into another thing. This is unfortunate if true. Bronson Pinchot said, "quote He was tense and made constant, constant, unrelated." homophobic comments. You want some ice cream in case there are no gay people there? I mean, his lingo was larded with the most... There was no basis for it. It was like, it's a nice day. I'm glad there are no gay people standing here. Very, very strange. In the same interview, Pinchot said working with Cruz, quote, weird, and called Cruz, quote, the biggest bore on the face of the earth. So that is weird. Unfortunate, if true, for sure. There's also another thing that ties into it. So Curtis Armstrong, who plays Miles? Um, yeah, Miles? Booger himself. Oh, yeah. Yes. yeah. Better Legendary. off dead. Better off dead. Don't forget. Yeah. So in his autobiography, Revenge of the Nerd, he recalled working Tom Cruise. He said, Tom self-identified as a born-again Christian, which this seems to 
counteract everything that we've seen in this is part of up to his career. Mike, like it seems like he's just party, party, party all the time. That that's crazy. Who would ever believe that Tom Cruise would fall in with a peculiar religion and that stories would be told about it? I know <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> The views of Walt Hickey do not reflect Cruise Club. Please do not come after us. Uh, and the rumor was he had actually considered shepherding souls for a living. I could believe it. Oh, like Pardew. I like Pardew. Uh, yeah. Holy man. Away from the set, initially, Tom made straight arrows look like corkscrews. I would ask him at the end of the day if he wanted to join us for the bar- at the bar for a drink. No, I recall him saying. Got an early call tomorrow. Got a workout still. Study my lines. And then I'd like to read the Bible a bit before bed. I laughed. He didn't. But then, and this is where it gets interesting, but then, returning late one night, I found three or four young girls, late teens, I suspect, Cruz was about 20 at the time of this movie, lined up in the hall outside of Tom's room. I remember thinking, quote, Tom's going to be really upset if these hot girls interfere with his Bible reading. So I asked them with all the stern gravitas of my 28 years, by the way, he was 28 playing a high schooler. Bronson? Oh, I'm sorry, Curtis Armstrong. Okay. If there was something I could do to help them, they just stared at me, and at that moment, Tom's door opened, and another girl came out, adjusting her hair and taking off down the hall, while the first girl in line slipped into Tom's room. There was a young man who knew something about time management and understood how to successfully juggle Bible study and blowjobs. I went to bed alone that night thinking it served me right for not being religious. And then, again, Curtis Armstrong said, Tom's an interesting character. Can't really make him out. He would appear to be on the brink of a great career. He wrote this in his journal that he kept, or diary that he kept while making the movie. But when it comes to doing things with him socially or professionally, he's not terribly reliable. Always late, very casual with other people's time. But in spite of it all, it's difficult not to like him. Though it's early days, the rehearsing I've done with him has gone smoothly. No arrogance or selfishness there, yet we'll see. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that we're running into, Mike, on this podcast, both in the crazy wild stories and also the, like, hey, he's kind of a little bit of a weirdo, is that once he becomes the most famous Scientologist in the world, I feel like we're going to be getting a lot of, like, after-the-fact, quote-unquote, trivia. You know what I mean? Where people are like, oh, I saw this coming, or I've got a story about him. Yeah. And Cage is... Cage and Keanu's kind of mercurial and Charlize's is relatively, I think, you know, wild childhood, but, you know, other than that sort of uneventful life, which is fine. But I feel like he's the first actor that we're covering. I guess Shia, too, in a way. But, you know, it's the first actor we're covering that is that there is this public perception of him. And I think that it's going to be interesting to sort of see the trivia evolve with that in mind. They're trying to separate mm-hmm. the art from the artist in a way, but... Yeah. That there's a lot of stories out there about him that people are like, you know, they want to sort of get a shot in at him or say that they were there or that they know something about him or, you know, whatever. Yeah, no, without a doubt, like, yeah, I mean, just due to his incredible success and, like, popularity, yeah, absolutely, I think, like, it's unavoidable. You know, he's controversial. What can you do? You know, like, it's just, he, he's massive and, yeah, every sort of part of his life people want to know about and stuff. And so when you people started digging it got kind of, there is they did kind of find some weird stuff but like yeah i, I agree with you say about actors too looking back maybe you know they just want to uh, a little bit of recognition for themselves and they get some of that by trying to bring up stories about people whatever what have you but it'll be interesting going forward because there's also a lot of public stuff that happens like during press and stuff you know a lot of like couch jumping and stuff like that so you know when we get there we'll get there but it's definitely you're right something we don't we have not 
really delved into or dealt with with uh, our previous uh, actors and actresses. So yeah, for sure. And I don't know if you're going to deal with it too much with Tom Hanks on the other side of this podcast. So I don't think so. No, so far all the behind the scenes stuff is like, oh, we liked him so much, we didn't even want to kill off his character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's wow. true. The, the one thing I have heard about Tom Cruise, and I think I've said this before, is that for all intents and purposes, he seems like people have said he's a genuinely nice guy on set, that he remembers everyone's name. So I don't know. There's there's, there's a lot more about him, I think, out in the world. Like people look at Nick Cage and like, oh, he's a terrible actor. He buys weird things. But like, that's not like, that's just like the very tip of the iceberg and not really true um, or not. You know, there's an explanation. There's a reason for it all. You know, we're just going to see like we were five episodes into like 45 or so. So we've got a lot more. Uh, Tom Cruise trivia to go, but just the things I saw. And the only thing I want to read uh, quickly before we before I stop talking for a while. The main character was originally cast. Uh, Brian Backer was cast as Joel. Joel replaced Good by son. Joel Good son. The very good. But son. replaced by Tom Cruise <laughs> after Cruise audition impressed the filmmakers. But oh. so here's the uh, interesting thing: the list of names who auditioned for this role are basically Mike like our greatest hits. Okay, are you ready for this? Oh, I'm ready. John Cusack, <laughs> Michael J. Fox, Alex B. Keaton, nice. okay. Sean Penn, uh-huh. Tom Hanks, hey. and Nicolas Cage. Wow. That's crazy. You know, I could have sworn I saw in one of the few high school shots, Brian, that actually takes place, this kid comes walking down the stairs, and I was like, is that Cage? And I rewound, and it wasn't, but I mean, <laughs> that's, that's crazy. So there is one thing I want to put in here. You just reminded me. There is a picture that I found. So this is the uh, film screen debut of Megan Mullally, which if you see in Discord, I put oh a picture gosh. in there. Uh, she walks by in the background for one frame or something. Um, so someone on Twitter found, hi, I'm Megan Mullally, and put her in the back there. So, you know, Mrs. Nick Offerman. And that's crazy, Joe. We just did the um, City of Angels revisited with Nick Offerman mm, mm-hmm. in that. So And that will actually be out. Uh, that came out yesterday as you're listening to this. So. This is our uh, week of Ron and Tammy Tubes. So. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so the other thing I want to read about the uh, the casting was that Paul Brickman, who wrote and directed this, saw Tom Cruise in Taps and said, this guy for Joel, this guy's a killer. Let him do Amityville 3. Because um, I think the producers wanted him and he didn't. Amityville 3D. Third time's a charm. Uh, so Tom Cruise said, somehow my agent, without knowing, arranged to have me just drop by the office to say hello. So I went in wearing a jean jacket. My tooth was chipped, I guess from the outsiders. My hair was greasy, I guess also from the outsiders. I was pumped up and talking in an Oklahoma accent. Hey, how y'all doing? Paul just sat there looking at me. Cruise returned to Tulsa but flew back to L.A. and auditioned again. I walk in and see this stunningly gorgeous woman sitting there looking at me, and I'm thinking, oh my god. Rebecca DeMornay had already been cast. They wanted to see the two of us together. I tested and make a short story long. We didn't test that well. Paul just believed in me. However, this is not what he said, Tom Cruise and Rebecca DeMornay started dating on set, so they obviously tested in real life uh, pretty well. So lots of things going on behind the scenes here. But that's enough of me talking. I am tired of hearing my own voice. (laughs) Walt, we do a, we have a little bit more structure here on these shows, even though it does not seem. Uh, what was your favorite moment of Risky Business? My favorite part of the movie. There's a scene where like the car falls into the lake. And I think the thing that I like about this movie in general is that it has a habit of like always raising the stakes. 
if they think that they solved the problem, well, the problem is escalating quickly. And like, it's kind of very save the caddy at times where it's very much, oh, this goes right. And then this happens. And then, oh, this goes right. And then this happens. And and I mean, that's nice in a movie. This one feels like that was the moment where it goes from being a romantic comedy where, oh, it's a misunderstanding between a professional and an amateur. And then it kind of accelerates to, okay, we're going to put on a brothel. I just think that again, like, Cruz is always at his best, and I don't think that this was proven then, but like we've seen since that Cruz is always at his best when he's kind of on his heels, and he's always like trying to fix a problem that he himself cannot solve by himself, and it's always fun. And I think that that scene really kind of distills like, oh no, things went really left, and there was nothing that he could do to stop it. It was just kind of a very much like, okay, this this movie's serious about moving the plot forward. So I thought it was a. Uh, it was jarring enough that I did not see it coming and that I enjoyed like the left swing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I really like that part. That's, I, I really feel like this movie does a great job of constantly raising the stakes. Like he makes one call that just snowballs, just keeps going downhill, you know, all, all the while this entire movie up until the very end when like he comes home and his house and he's been robbed. Like it just keeps going, you know, as bad as calling the character good son is, I feel like this is a really <laughs> well-written movie. Like, you know, this, this could be taught. Like the structure here is very tight. Yeah. The director of this is fascinating. Cause like, again, it seems like he had a story to tell and he told it and to his credit, he, you know, finished it right there. And, and, whether or not he got disenchanted with the industry after is, is I think like really fun. But I think that there's some, there's like, I have a lot of admiration for people who set out to do something tell a story that they really, really want to tell, accomplish that story. And then f- do not feel the need to kind of milk that kind of like the anti JK Rowling or the anti George Lucas. Right. Like, but in general, this movie like really killed at the box office. And you would think that he would have a ticket to ride. I just guess that he, he wasn't in, uh, interested in, in kind of continuing with it. But Again, I, I just think that really so much of this movie is done in the direction because even though Cruz is absolutely a movie star and you can tell it, this movie feels like a really important turning point for him. And it's kind of like a very unique story that you kind of feel like only he can tell. Considering how well a lot of the movie works like in that regard, it's surprising to me how little this guy has written and directed. Like He only directed, I think, three movies. He's written mm-hmm. about eight. For somebody who makes this movie that is beloved or iconic or such a, a key part in Tom Cruise's life. And it seems like pretty, you know, like what was saying successful at the box office and I think well-respected and well-liked by fans. I, I, I wonder what happened to the guy. Because it seems like he should do more, because this, this is a good movie. Read your trivia, Joey. Read your trivia. What, is there tri- Do you know trivia about it? Yeah, he just got so jaded by the process during this film, because they changed his ending, that he really didn't feel like directing oh, again. I, oh. I did read that they read the ending, that he wanted a more depressing ending, and the, the, the positive ending of him just with, you know, with, with Lana in the park or whatever, oh, tested better. Yeah. I don't know, man. Like, come on, just <laughs> I had shake a- it off. I had a quick question about the the scene that Walt picked out. And so watching it this time, I was watching it real closely and, you know, come to find out, like, it's somewhat of a long con, this whole movie, you know, um, with um, Guido and some of the other girls. (laughs) Showy pants. There's the shot of her grabbing her purse from the car and she accidentally removes the brake or whatever. Did Do you think that she oh. did that intentionally to sort of try and get the ball rolling? Because she comes up with that idea and he To rejects. get the ball rolling or to get the car rolling? <laughs> ah, there you go. Because like that's when she comes up with the idea. She's like, you know, we could basically turn your house into a whorehouse for the weekend and like bank. And he's like, no. And then he needs the money for the car now. So like he's trapped and he has to do it. I I think it was on purpose. That's my theory. One thing that I really, really like about this movie is that you never really know whether she's genuine or conning him. 
the end of the, like even if this is the happy ending, I still don't feel like it's a happy ending. Like because he still feels kind of like young, dumb, and full of cum. Like, she says at one point, like, they say, like, our age, but I think she's probably a couple years older, maybe. She just seems so much smarter than he is, just in, like, common sense. Like, he might have the book smarts and the very, very average SAT scores and grades to get into Princeton, apparently. She's got him wrapped around her little finger throughout the entire movie, and I like that you never really know just how in on it she is with Guido and with uh, with Vicky. And that's what I, like, I really love this about this movie, which is, like, all of these boys in this movie are dumb, rich schmucks. There's, like, no reason, like, they're not good at things. They, they're in clubs. They don't run business, right? They're, they're dealing with women who are savvy professionals at this, and they think that they're on top of it because they're used to being on top of stuff because they have money and they're the future entrepreneurs of America. But the people that they're dealing with are way out of their league. Like Tom Cruise thinks that he can out business a pimp and he can't. And like, because all of the guys in this movie are idiots. The moment that Cruise like gets savvy about it and he's just like, Oh, I'm going to hustle these other marks and, and get them to pay me a bunch of money so that I can do this business with my friend is like the moment where he kind of comes into his own. It's where he kind of realizes like, Oh no, I do know nothing. This person knows how to do this. I'm just going to follow her lead and manage to bamboozle all these dumb idiots into coming to my place. And I like really, really like that part of it where it, it, it's a movie where everybody there's that, that, that joke about like Washington where everybody thinks that they're in the West wing, but they're really in deep. And that's what I like about this movie is that all the guys think that they're Patrick Bateman, but they're all idiots. And I think that this movie really revels in the space in between with the, the competence that they think that they have and the competence that they in fact have. And it, it's a, it's a fun play on that at the very least. The, the I think the director wanted the movie to be called white boys off the lake, which is a line that's said in this movie. But I think that just goes to show like he's just he's a mark. He's just a dumb mm-hmm. kid who is I mean, this whole, you know, when he goes into sales mode, which is amazing when he's got the glasses on, smoking cigarettes, going from like, you know, pizza place oh, to pizza yeah. place or whatever. I called it uh, Ferris Bueller mode. Yeah. Because, you know. Are we going to talk about the alternate endings? Should I wait to that? Oh yeah, no, we can we can talk about that, but I just you know we we will talk about all of it because there, I mean there's a lot to talk about. How I feel about this relates to that. When he goes into sales mode, I feel like it's just it, he's preying on these like nerdy guys or overweight guys, the guys who like can't get the girls, and mm. I feel like it's it's interesting, seemingly by choice, that you don't really see girls his age. Like, the only women in this movie, I think, are his mom and. All the hookers, all the call girls, whatever they're called. And his fantasy girls, the two babysitters, quote-unquote. But, like, you you never see... Like, it's not like, you know, in in Losing It, Mike, where he had the girlfriend in that one scene, and then he goes mm-hmm. down, to te- to, down to to Mexico, to Tijuana. It's Shelley Long, yeah. Right. Um, but, Brian, why don't you say... You, you said you had some thoughts about the ending and sort of and what we're talking about. This is, to me, like, a almost perfect Reagan capitalist film. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. I think yeah. the original ending was for me, better. Do you want to describe the ending so that for people well, who don't know it? from what I read from the director, and you could watch it on YouTube, but I, I didn't have the time. Sorry. I read, like, the director's interpretation, and he wanted it to be more, yeah, it was kind of obvious that she was conning him, but now she likes him. And he's not that smart of a guy, but due to his rich white affluence, he was going to advance more in life than her. So now he's almost conning her. And Tom Cruise is kind of saying, like, I don't know if we're going to make it in that kind of way, you know, because now he's suddenly better than her because he started off better than her, which is terrible, 
but I feel like more accurate. Well, I, I got, I sort of got that sense when he charges her for being with him. Remember at the end, he's like, yeah, but he's like, he's like doing it he's, like in a jocular tone. I think, yeah, I think it's a joke. Like, I think that's, uh, I, no, I know that it's a joke, but I mean, I think the movie is still trying to be metaphorical at that point. And there's a part that I wanted to mention later on where like the movie just does something that like kind of makes no sense except to sort of make a point like metaphorically but I think it's also you know it it might be joking at the end but it's also you know this rich white good looking kid who's going to make it in life just because he is rich and young and white and good looking sort of already exerting the power like even in a joking matter but like Mm -hmm. hey you want to you want to spend time with me uh pay up so this movie can be real depressing if you want to think about it but it also can be a lot of fun if you don't want to think about it so (laughs) i love the angle that it is like this it's a business lesson almost or or thinks it is like it it's about kids playing business because like wall street was huge and like like brian said about like reagan at the reagan era everything like that like uh, young entrepreneurs and all that kind of thing and so i thought that was pretty funny in here how it's the oldest profession and like he's a young entrepreneur Mm and i don't know it's just an interesting premise you'd think it would be more of a comedy right like i you know nowadays this is definitely if they remade it it would be just like a wacky boner comedy that would probably stink i had kind of forgotten um just how dramatic and serious like it it took it and I think it worked yeah. like that. I think that was a good way to go. To an extent, this is the ultimate Reagan era movie. It's a capitalist story. It's a story of a, of a young, ideolo- idealistic individual who decides to break down and just go into the most capitalist possible business, the oldest business in town. And, and I mean, like, even like the back of it, like, it's a pretty Reagan era movie. Like you mentioned, apparently Tom Cruise was really homophobic behind the scenes. Reagan era movie. Like, there's a lot. Um, this really feels like an extremely 80s movie for a whole bunch of reasons. And in both good and bad ways, obviously, where there are parts that seem a little bit dated at the same time that there are also parts that are like, oh, this story would not have been told two, three years earlier. And there's another bit of trivia on IMDb that 10 years before you know, they would hook up again for uh, Jerry Maguire, Cameron Crowe, I guess, while writing for Rolling Stone, probably interviewed Tom Cruise and was like, what's this movie about? And Tom Cruise had this whole, like, that I just, I got rid of because it was all nonsense, but it's just about, it's about capitalism, it's about this, it's about that. So, like, they were all, you know, like, this is, it's about all that sort of stuff. But, uh, yeah, this is a very Reagan era in all regards, uh, mostly bad. So, Brian, what about you? What was your favorite moment in this movie? I was going to say the car, but that already, you know, was said. Hey, you can say the car. Yeah, no, no, but, the car. but I, I really like to see not that i agreed with what happened but i like to see that princeton uh admissions guy show up i thought that was interesting yeah that guy was not phased by anything richard mazers his name and he appears in two high school films of note one license to drive license to drive he's the dad we haven't done that Mm -hmm. one yet on my show but we did insano man where he's also the dad so mm-hmm. <laughs> I was pretty happy to see him. I mean, I liked the the party, how they kept upping the stakes. And I liked when Joey Pants call, uh, picks up the phone at her apartment, you know? Brian, I actually want to know your opinion here. You, at this point, are a connoisseur, or like an expert at, at, at high school era movies. And I guess I'm wondering is like, how does this stack up? It feels like there's a lot of the, the, the beats of a high school movie in here. You've got a car getting ruined and a high school scene. And, and uh, there's a lot of different like elements here that seem to be kind of a core chunk of the eighties canon. And, and so I guess from your point of view as, as like somebody who's really steeped in this stuff, like where does this movie stack up? I don't know. See, and Mike had a good point about this because most of the time this stuff happens, it's in comedy movies. This is one of the only like dramas I've seen where house party gone awry, car gets fucked up. 
Though it happens a lot. Where it stacks up, I don't know. I'm not really a scholar. I just have fun with these things. But. No, I mean, but, but Brian, like, don't undersell what you've done. Like, you're, like the episode that comes out today, Fridays are for fun, you know, it's your 43rd episode. Like, you have, you've done a shit ton of high school movies. And I joked about with you, like, even after 10, that it feels, like, in, in, in times and ways, that you're watching the same movie over and over again. Oh, because absolutely. there's, like, the same beats over and over again so and i'm not uh, don't undersell yourself like you've seen more high school movies at least especially in the last year than all three of us combined probably so don't sell yourself short you are you could get into princeton on your high school merits <laughs> thanks dad yeah and you know just like the whole getting laid right getting laid premise like that is well that was another I, I thing really... too like th- like yeah. this hits a lot of these high school film beats like almost not i want to say all all of them but almost all the 80s 90s beats getting laid like that's like the end all be all of most high school films up until like recently. So I'll save some of my stuff for the negative things. This is pretty like up there in terms of in terms of high school dramas. Yeah. This is pretty up there cuz like I said, most films I do that are like high school films with from the point of view of the high schooler are comedies. Well, I think that this movie sort of reels you in with the comedy, and then it's just like, oh, no, this is a lot more serious. Although I think you can also make a... It's a dark comedy, I think, but I think you could make a point that this is a comedy through and through that just, like, he, that life kind of catches up to him because he's doing dumb things, right? Like, we're talking about the snowball effect, like, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, well, I definitely caught myself, like, laughing to myself, like, about how just much more trouble he keeps getting into. But I feel like it's more played about, like, character comedy not situation i mean yeah they are, don't get me wrong like it's a wacky situation by all means but like it doesn't feel wacky you know i feel like they're really cra- joel is pretty solid like really well set up and crafted and you're like yeah like this is not gonna be the sort of hero white boy that i'm sort of used to seeing in an 80s movie right like usually the uh the lead white guys got like ferris bueller like i said earlier you know like that's what came to mind and this is not like he might be good looking and stuff but he does not have all the right moves uh to lose it whoa um, whoa <laughs> whoa before and after the ghost of cruise past and future and past and present so that's that's pretty interesting i feel for you know that's kind of out of the box like for the lead of a 80s movie you know most of the time they have all the answers like you know everything goes right it's you know you know we could get out of this don't worry let's just keep going and like i feel like this is a little different in that regard well what else works for you mike what's your favorite moment in this oh. movie so there's a lot you know i don't i don't want to pick the obvious like the the dance scene was was fun to revisit i like this dream sequences a lot i thought those were good but a moment that stuck out at me that just tickled my filmmaker bone i guess like okay so like early on we only see his parents from joel point of view and i was like oh this is an interesting shot yes. it's like a yes. very long take and we're following him around the house and isn't that and then there's another shot of joel's point of view driving to the airport and then there's another shot in, in the, the airport, airport. Yeah. i was mm-hmm. like this is epic i was like why do one when you could do several and keep it going and it really just hammers home like okay i i know exactly how he feels about his parents and how they how they feel about him and you know look down on him and all this and that and so i just 
I think that was my favorite, one of my favorite parts this time. You know, I don't say that that sort of ties into mine. I like it's weird at first, but I like how most of this movie kind of feels like a dream and almost none of it is like there's a two dream sequences that are kind of masturbation fantasies. Like this is a movie in which Tom Cruise jerks off. Like we see him start to jerk off, which I was like, (laughs) what? But, you know, aside from the times he's fantasizing about the, the girl in the shower or, you know, the babysitter or whoever, this all happened, I guess, in this world. But yet that doesn't mean that like, when Rebecca de Mornay comes over, the wind blows open the back door, leaves start to blow in there while they're having sex immediately. Like, I was just, it's all, like, heightened and crazy, and I like that there's, like, this surreal vibe, yet it's still, like, a grounded movie. Like, I don't know how better to describe it, but it's it's this weird blend of real and fantasy that all mm-hmm. winds up being real for the most part. That's a good call, Joey, because that really puts you in his frame of mind. Reality to him is not reality right like his perspective is what like he he's treating this moment like a fantasy and i feel like that bleeds into how naive he is like in the next morning and how he gets tricked into letting her stay and he just becomes you know like pussy whip sorry for lack of a better term like he's he's got it he doesn't want to get rid of it he'll do whatever he can to keep it and then you know once that egg is lost metaphor i think he'll do anything to get it back so like yeah he's just he's in a predicament (laughs) what i think is also really kind of interesting you know like this is this is his fantasy but you know when he's being chased by guido right like he 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 and his friend (laughs) go to that uh hotel or whatever to find lana and they see her there and she's with a guy and he like does his little like there is a shot from the trailer for widows which has been used in every year-end montage I've seen. But it's that shot of Daniel Kaluuya and Brian Tyree Henry, paperboy from Atlanta. And Daniel Kaluuya does like that like little like wave with his like two fingers. Like it's like this menacing gesture, which is also super fucking cool. And it reminds me, like in this movie in a way that like he does his like weirdo kind of wave, like I see you, I got you. And then she leaves and his friend's like, wait, that was, that, that was your play? Like that's all you got? They go outside, they find her, Guido starts chasing them, they drive away. But what I think is interesting, long story short, in that getaway, and earlier in the movie when he smokes that guy who, like, challenges him to a race at that stoplight, shout out Fast and Furious, it reminds me of the Wolf of Wall Street, like, where Leo is on the, uh, is all fucked up, and he's on the (laughs) lose, and you see him drive home and get home safely, and, like, he, like, heroically saves the day, and then, like, you smash cut to, like, what actually happened, he hits, like, literally every car he passes, and then, like, his car shows up at home, like, completely, like, dismantled and, like, just disgusting wreck. Like, I feel like this whole movie is the vision of, like, what life on Ludes is like, but we don't actually see the, like, what life is actually like on Ludes. Like, we don't actually get the after. And I feel like that's a really interesting way to, like, frame an entire movie, because he gets away with it all. Yeah, I love that part of the Wolf of Wall Street, just because, again, it's the it's the dissimilarity between what people think is happening and what is actually happening, and there's a heightened sense of realism, it feels like, through this whole thing, where... Tom Cruise is 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 playing a character who sincerely feels as if he's in, in control, but a like simple reading of the of of like the plot alone shows that he's the least person in control. There's no possible way that he is running the show in this movie. There's no possible way that he's like he, he's absolutely being led. And I think that there's like a super interesting question that you got it earlier, which is like, is he being led around? Is is like is is he of autonomy in this one? Is he being just as fooled as everyone else in this? And it's like. 
you know, it, it's, um, it's a fun question of, of like this heightened reality. And I think that that's also kind of a credit to the director because it gets you into that kind of adolescent haze where you're in that mindset where you don't know how the world works and you're trying to figure out how the world works and you're doing a really bad job of it, but you're still doing it and it's going to have consequences for everyone involved. But it's a, it's a fun like aesthetic and I, I actually like really enjoyed it in this movie. So now Walt, if we, you know, we, we talked a lot about what we like, what was, what did you, what did you not like about this movie? Like what was, did you have a least favorite moment or scene or bit from Risky Business? Yeah, there were a few things that I didn't love about the movie. I would say that the one that is just kind of the most prominent, I feel like we, I would not be the only one to bring this up, is like this movie really aged kind of badly, especially on its treatment of sex workers, particularly the first sex worker. Again, like they call in the phone book and it's played as a joke because, again, it's like it's it's a male actor playing the sex worker. And it just seems like that's the kind of stuff that people got a lot less cool with. Somewhat more recently than I think that we would hope. Do I think that that movie, would, that scene would be, be done as it was right now? No. Do I think that it would have been done that way five years ago? Maybe. Do I think it would have been done that way 10 years ago? 150%. I do realize that this is the thing that the culture shifted pretty quickly on, but I think that that's like that like mild latent homophobia of the late 80s is a very prevalent thing that I think is going to kind of smear perfectly fine movies uh, going forward or just at least make them a little bit wincier to watch. You you have to judge art by its situation and and its time, but that just felt like a very, very like cruel way of going about it and a very kind of mean joke that didn't need to happen the way it was. And it feels kind of out of pace with, I think, like the spirit of the rest of the movie in a way that it almost just kind of takes me out of it. But again, like I, I don't think that I'm really, I'm saying anything super divisive here where I think that they handle some stuff kind of negatively early on. Like I can see that you need something in between his friend calling the first number he finds in the, apparently like newspapers back in the eighties were like the internet now, like it's just all mm-hmm. smut. Like it is <laughs> graphic in the newspaper. Yeah. I mean the classifieds. Wow. It's like, it's just, it's misconnections, but like, it's, it's wow. You need a, a buffer of some kind between his buddy calling the first number he sees and then Lana. Because if he calls the number and Lana or Lana, sorry, Lana shows up, it's like, oh, your your buddy did you a solid. Like I, I get that there needs to be something in between, but it doesn't need to be what this movie goes for. So I I, I agree that that's you know not great. I understand why it something like that happens, but not that. Um, also, I'm I'm watching the movie as we. Uh, record and uh, it's that scene right now and another shot that I really love is like when Tom Cruise closes the door and the camera just follows him around the house Mm -hmm. as he grips the you know the phone off the charging cable or whatever and then just keeps doing laps in his house like it's just like such little like little things like that or big things or whatever that are just so so cool you know what else was kind of funny is that later on in the movie he mentions that he calls this person Jackie who shows up, he calls her to find out where Lana is. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Like, hey, I still got this number. I guess, I I don't know. There was just something weird about that, but... He's resourceful, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Brian, what was your least favorite moment in Risky Business? I already mentioned that I kind of would have preferred the more morbid ending. I have to hit on the same points. That kind of stuff was... There's a lot of dated shots, if you will, you know, in terms of it's definitely like a male gazy film. Oh yeah, this is like a total straight white boy like high school sex fantasy movie. Which is you know, funny because like nine and a half weeks for a teenager <laughs> or something. Yeah, like again, normally you see a lot of cheap comedy, like high school comedies that are about that, 
it's just like a well-regarded drama. And I was kind of surprised, like just little things, like even at the end scene, like how you could just, she, her dress, they're like walking through a park and her dress is like see-through for no apparent reason. Fashion, baby. That was not fashion, okay? <laughs> no, it's style. It's, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it just, it fits the demographic and the need of the tone of what they're going for. I feel like this whole movie, like, you could do it with adults or something. I don't know. Like, it feels like they're playing house in a way. Or like, you know, we got a bunch of kids to do this grown-up movie. And it's, yeah, it's like, uh, instead of all these teen comedies, like, we get a uh, an adult teen movie or something like that. I, I agree. It's kind of strange. I think when they do it nowadays, it's not as obvious or something, right? Like, I can't even really throw a name out there at the moment, but, you know, serious teen dramas are probably just done a lot better these days, I guess. Yeah, it made me, like, more uncomfortable than a comedy would, and I'm not sure why, if that makes sense. Well, even think of, like, The Edge of Seventeen, which is, like, a really great movie, and I get uncomfortable watching it just because, like, I'm a really old guy watching, like, really young people deal with, like, sex and stuff like that, you know, and it's emotional, and that's good, though. It, that You should be affected in a lot of different ways. Uh, that's what, like, a good movie does, I guess, right? Like, make you uncomfortable when it should, and happy when you should, and so forth. Yeah, true. In, in terms of the, I guess, uh, unusual type of story maybe for kids, or, you know, a, a sort of a continuation of what you were just talking about, that the director cited Bertolucci's The Conformist from 1970, which I have not seen, but has a very high rating on Letterboxd, which is about a weak-willed Italian man becomes a fascist flunky who goes abroad to arrange the assassination of his old teacher, now a political dissident. Hmm. And uh, the director of this said, that was a huge influence on this. I thought, why can't you present that as a film for youth and aspire to that kind of style and still have humor in it? That was the test to meld the darker form of filmmaking with humor. Tone is what I wanted to play with. And I think if we had gotten the downer of an ending, I think this would have been less of a celebration of young, rich white men. You know what I mean? Like, I think that if you have the first say, 90 minutes of it, be like, oh, he's going to get away with it. Like, this kid, you know, he's going to be handed life on a silver platter, and, you know, his his parents come back, and there's all they notice that there's a, a small crack in the egg because he has to pay for it or whatever. And then if you find out that, like, he does, he's not going to have it all. Like, I feel like that's sort of like a, remember that, like, that fun you thought you were having, it's not actually there, but with the the better ending or the positive ending or whatever, it just sort of it's it sort of feels like we're celebrating a little bit too much, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I guess every negative part of this movie for me is just more me hating the kind of things that actually exist in society and that's not the film's fault. So Right. I mean like the train scene. I just have so many issues with it as a as a regular commuter in and of myself. Like, first of all, like the the person on that train who was just like Again, trying to like give them the eyes until they just left to a different car or, or, or stopped doing that on that train. Like He is all of us. He's just trying to commute. He's had a couple. He's trying to get home. And then what happens to him? Tom Cruise grabs him, hurls him out of a train car, sits him down, makes him miss a train and have to wait hours to go home just so that he can get with the girl inside of a train car of all. Like, this guy had a car, right? Like There's limit like his parents aren't home there's limitless options as to where he can take this girl and instead he takes to a weird one train car that is going through an infinitely long tunnel i know that you guys are enormously fond as i am of the fast and the furious movies and if anything this uh, this magical tunnel circling the entirety of lake michigan reminded me of that that really really long runway from um what was like fast five or fast six it was a Loss of suspension for disbelief. And just it really took me out because I've seen what goes down on those seats 
and you do not want to hook up with anybody on those seats. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, as you know, one of the two New Yorkers on this podcast, I mean, you you would know better than me in terms of, I guess, how realistic that is. But Brian, have you run into that kind of uh, experience on your subway adventures? No, I mean, the germs. <laughs> The germs. I, I yeah, especially back then. Like I feels you know that was before Rudy Giuliani cleaned up the city, right? So well, this is this is Chicago. Yeah, this is Chicago. So I don't know. York, oh, it's not New York. Chicago. That's right. Yeah. It feels like New York. It, it, oh. It's before Batman cleaned up. The city. <laughs> yeah. As like a transit junkie, I was very confused by. I guess the late night train in Chicago at the time only has one car. It's just unrealistic. Like, the idea is the car is covered in gonorrhea. You have to shovel drunks out of it. And worst of all, think about it this way. There's like a – like, they think that they're alone in that car, but but this is the 80s. These trucks aren't operated by robots. Like, there's a driver in the car. It's a trolley who – I'm sure that if you looked in his rear view, he would see a, a teenager and a local prostitute just going to town on, on ultra gonorrhea-covered seats. This is – I know that at the time this must have been a sexy scene, but knowing what we know now – but actually, no, this couldn't have been a sexy scene back then because they had germ theory in the 80s. Like, there's no way that this, like, this anybody, it's it's like when you see places in movies from where you're from or like, oh, no, it's not like that at all. Or, ew, no, why would they do that? It's like, that's, like, anybody who is, is from a city where you ride on a train would under no circumstances do anything. Like, I wouldn't do anything medical on a train. I wouldn't put a contact lens in on a train. Like, I, it's it, it just takes me out of it. And, like, I'm sure that, like, that must have been a formative memory for a lot of people who watch Risky Business, but for me, it's just absolutely gut wrenching to watch, and I and I did not enjoy that. Well, the the one thing that I will say, and this is again just to prove that I read your newsletter every day, is that at least this is the kind of gonorrhea before it became super gonorrhea. So this is still <laughs> antibiotics can still take care of that, even though they are definitely getting infected by stuff just from like having sex in like a disgusting germ ridden uh train car but yeah i mean like i was saying it's just extremely impractical i don't care for it there's no like they had other places to go i'm sure the lighting was cool but like the elevated train is not the place for the situation it was just it was it took me out of it i didn't care for it at all well i mean a lot i think a lot of the sex in this movie is doesn't look comfortable no. Like there's so there's the scene you know when Rebecca De Mornay shows up and they have like I guess like upright sex by the chilly open you know the wind blowing in <laughs> then they go to the stairs mm-hmm. and then they go to that like a chair maybe comfortable maybe uncomfortable office chair in front of a TV with the American flag literally blowing on the oh, TV like oh. oh well that's the end of the broadcast day you know they used to. The American yeah. flag and, and the national. Do you remember that flag. from your childhood, Mike? Yeah, you should have. When the TV was first invented, it was only on for a couple hours, and we'd all sit around <laughs> watching the test pattern. And it was just the anthem on the radio, right? Well, we had George and Gracie. They were they were there. <laughs> Little Orphan Annie. She was popular. All right, all right, old Mike, old man Mike. What's your uh, least favorite moment of Risky Business? I totally agree with our guests so far. I want to try and pick something else. Uh, there's definitely not enough Joey Pants in this movie. Great seeing him pop up. Him and Cruz have that great scene in the front yard, and I just love the way he ignores Joel as a person and just plays him. I guess I'll go with the real one, and then I'll save this for sort of final thoughts. I'll save the other thing. But okay. I really kind of hated that one friend of his who was already getting laid a lot. I don't know why it bothered me so much, but they were portraying like the one kid who had a girlfriend and then cheated on his girlfriend 
with one of the prostitutes later as like really awesome and cool and like you know made fun of Tom Cruise a lot for being a virgin and took advantage of him and like just had sex in his house a lot. It's oh like, yeah, when really, he comes over really the beginning. bothered me. Yeah, yeah, that's weird. That's real weird. Yeah, I didn't like that. I'm looking through my notes to try to find what I like the least that hasn't already been said, and I'm just finding things that I really enjoyed, like little touches, like the neighborhood kids who are just watching the show that is this house. Like, they're always (laughs) just on the front lawn, like, watching the party or watching the moving truck at the end or just, like, watching, you know, the call girls go in and out. Like, they're just there a lot. You could tell, yeah, that's pre-internet. That's pre-Nintendo, you know, so yeah. like they weren't inside doing much these days. I like when after the Porsche goes into the water and they bring it to the shop and they open the door, the water comes out and there's just like fish swimming around. Like I think I like I like that touch <laughs> a lot. Uh, I love how cute Rebecca DeMornay looks when he, she puts on his sunglasses for one scene. She says at one point, I think on the phone, she says ciao. And I had the subtitles on because I was writing down a quote and the subtitles just say, speaks Italian. So I liked, <laughs> I liked that. I was starting to wonder if uh, the Curtis Armstrong character was real, just because my mind always is going in that direction. But I was like, is he projecting that character? But then other characters are like, like that Ferris Bueller theory, right? Yeah, like the Cameron theory and all that kind. Because like, I mean, he is at the poker game in the beginning. He is talking to other characters, but when he's just talking to to Hanks to Cruz, they're like these really deep moments and stuff and that's when he gives him the what the fuck advice and everything and or you just have to say what the hell or whatever i don't know (laughs) i was having fun with that again (laughs) the point where tom cruise actually does say where joel does say what the fuck after the uh princeton interview goes very poorly and he puts on the sunglasses and just like yeah what the fuck and he like does that like little shrug like i guess it's the university of illinois Apparently that was improvised. That's still like a cool like little like there's a lot of I think shots in this movie and looks that are again to use your word Brian iconic uh, that that just like I think it's a lot around the glasses. It's a lot around Tom Cruise's you know million dollar smile around the cigarette and stuff. Like it's just like this whole repeated image this this motif if, if you will of just this this bulletproof kid. So this is kind of a question for y'all. I mean I know that I don't have a ton of experience with the ultra early Cruise, and so I guess what I'm wondering is like. So when I was watching this movie, it felt like, in a credit to the director, it felt like the director absolutely knew what he had in Tom Cruise in many ways before a lot of other people did because like, he can tell that, okay, you point a camera at Tom Cruise, you're going to get good tape. If you, if you keep Tom Cruise in the frame, you're going to have a livelier movie. It's one of the situations where I think that this pops up like throughout Tom Cruise's career. Like This is an actor who lights up the screen when he's in it. He's like, the kind of person that you always want to look at. For some reason, he's got like... He he know he has the discipline and like the notion of where what his angles are where he always looks good on frame and I think that this is a movie directed or at least shot by somebody who is a hundred percent certain of this and who knows that the more that you have Tom Cruise on screen the better your movie is going to be and so I guess like my question to you guys is like was this the first movie that kind of really made sure that Tom was on screen the whole time or like was this an earlier thing that was picked up in like bosom buddies. We're not buzzing buddies, that's the other guy. The interesting thing, so this is our fifth episode, this is his fifth movie. From the fourth thing he was in, so from the last episode onward, uh, he's never not the lead again. So, like, very, very quickly they were like, oh, this he's going to be a star. Like, yeah. he can carry a movie. Yeah, and his first appearance he as Billy the Arsonist. Oh, it's so good. In uh, Endless Love, he's mm-hmm. in one scene for, like, half a it's minute. 47 or a minute seconds. It's electric. It's, it's so like, good. Who, who is this? Where can I see more of this? Like, this is insane. Who is this 
kid out of nowhere. And then in every subsequent movie, it's like that. And especially Taps. I think in Taps, yeah. it's like, wow, I'm, I'm like he, this kid is going places. Like he's going toe to toe with like all these Sean Penn, everyone yeah. else. Like he really kind of took that movie. And I know that we're we're a little biased in that we're watching these movies for him. So there, he's always going to catch our eye. But I feel like in these movies so far, it's like, yes, he's the one to watch. Although, maybe a little bit different in The Outsiders, just because, like, The Outsiders is filled with, like, the one oh, to watch. It's, like, it's like, yeah, oh, yeah. Rob Lowe, he's going to be huge. Patrick Swayze, he's going to be huge. Like, it's all those kind yeah. of people, you know what I mean? So I know this isn't the case, but it feels like one of those instances where it's designed for him to be a, b- a bigger star or something, where, like, the studio would get together and say, what do we got for this Tom Cruise kid that would, like, you know, catapult him or, like, get people to remember him and stuff like let's find this kid a movie to like break out and i know he you know like auditioned and got the role and stuff but like yeah it just kind of reminded me of back in like the old old days where they would like manufacture a star and i think you know they still do that from time to time and in different ways and stuff but it just seems like in the 80s when people were really on the rise like you could you could catapult into superstardom very quickly if you had like what it took. And I think the interesting thing is the last movie we did lose in it, which is this ostensibly a sex comedy where four high school students go down to Mexico to lose their virginity, and then it becomes this, like, weird movie where, like, Jackie Earl Haley just wants to get Spanish fly so he can date rape girls, not an exaggeration, and that Tom Cruise falls in love with Shelley Long as this older woman who gets divorced or wants to get divorced, and, like, it's this whole thing that, like, it's not a sex comedy halfway through the movie. And that movie, again, like, slows down when Tom Cruise is in on screen. Like, he's got this very weird emotional through line that doesn't really make sense of the rest of the movie, but whenever, like, Jackie, or, Jackie Earl Haley or this other guy who's just an asshole or on screen, it's just like, well, yeah, like, but let's get back to that guy, or let's get back to the, the younger kid, because... You know, Jackie Earl Haley's younger brother is also great in that movie, but it feels like that movie didn't realize, maybe, what it had in Tom Cruise, whereas this movie very clearly mm, does. Interesting. And just to sort of round up the uh, least favorite moments, I'm going to say, as someone who has moved uh, four or five times in the last, like, six or seven years, there's absolutely no goddamn way that this house that has been pointed out by multiple people, it's giant and, you know, affluent and you know, beautiful and filled with expensive stuff. All of the house, all of the belongings in the house fit on like a 12-foot moving truck (laughs) and also like casually in the front yard. Like that is wildly inaccurate. I can tell you that much. Um, So that was my least favorite moment. That is troublesome. I fucking love that moment though when like Joey Pants is like, I, you know, I could like break your legs if you'd rather or whatever. He's like, I'm being nice. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? For like, all intent and purpose, as far as, like, movie pimps go, like, this is probably the nicest, like, most sort of, like, understanding. He's like, I'm going to teach you, like, a like a life lesson instead. I'm going to do you one better, kid. Damn, I need more of Joey Pants. He's like, give me all the money that belongs to me, and we're, we're good. It's like, oh, okay. You know, I guess, Mike, sometimes they say, ignorance is bliss. Harp music, harp music, harp music. <laughs> I love in this movie that Tom Cruise, like, there's just, there's so many Frozen, it feels like this is sponsored by Frozen Dinners, uh, <laughs> but the first one he eats, he, I guess he doesn't cook, and he's eating that, like, meat popsicle, like, it's just the entire front tray, just frozen, yeah, just weird, I like that. I wish we got a little more, sort of, Kevin McAllister moments with him, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, Home Alone. I have a, a new a possibility, Mike, for... Uh, sex, what we can call sex. This is the second, like, this crosses over with Hanks. Hanks and Sonny had sex depicted by two trains crashing, yeah. and he actually, Cruz has 
sex on a train in it's this true. movie. So. so I have it. I have separate. Separate from that, we don't call sex sex because I think it's funnier to you know instead of saying like they had sex, it's like you know a cage compromised a woman because that was from the Boy in Blue or you know Keanu in Youngblood in 1986. <laughs> there's this old woman who ostensibly sleeps with every young hockey player, so she lures them in with tea. So it's sipping tea with Miss McGill. Uh, that's what we called sex on that. So we're trying to figure out. We're trying to get our footing here in the Tom Tom Club. What we're gonna call sex. I think it's right before they go when the friend comes over to have sex in the house, and he's trying to show him the idea for the young uh, the young enterprisers, right? And it's the memo minder, and he's like, you know, you write down the note, you think this, it flashes the light, you press this other button, it makes a sound or whatever. So I was thinking maybe, you know, as this is all going on, there's like sex, you can hear the grunting and the moaning and the banging upstairs. Maybe minding memos. He was minding memos with her. So (laughs) just throwing it out there, just as a possibility. It's high up on the list for me. So that actually, now that scene makes more sense to me. Very ironically, I was watching the first part of this film again, on the subway. Okay. <laughs> I didn't I did not hear the sex sounds during that oh, scene. Oh, yes. So I was like, "Wait, what?" And okay, so thank you for the clarification. He calls up and it's just like, you know, lo- just lock us. He's he's so fed up with it. He's like, "Lock up on your way out." They don't respond. And that's why he says, you know, "Moan twice if you understand." And she goes, "Uh, uh." And he's like, "All right." And then he then he leaves. <laughs> Quick subway, or not, I guess it's not subway in uh, Chicago, but I did look up some transit facts. I know your fans are big transit junkies. Of so. course, especially of the band Chicago Transit Authority. So. <laughs> so there was no single car transit lines in 1983. And the specific line they were on from that lake area did not have underground stations. It was completely above ground. That would bother me if I was from Chicago. Brian, you are ruining the movie magic of this movie. <laughs> one thing that actually sort of disappoints me, and this is like one of the last notes I have, is that you know the movie starts out by uh, Joel's dad. This is a, the scene that Mike was talking about before, where we're in Tom Cruise's POV, and he, Joel's dad brings him over to the to the little cabinet. And he's like, uh, "Do you hear anything different about the music?" And Tom Cruise is like, "No, I don't." He's like, "Maybe there's a little bit more bass." And the dad like adjusts the equalizer exactly where he wants it. I feel like the movie sets up the dad to be this like very particular person who notices things. And so I feel like at the end when they come back, when they mm-hmm. fly back, Brian and Mike, we have a little bit of a Sean's dad moment here, where Tom Cruise is like, "No, you said the sixth, <laughs> not the fifth. What are you talking about?" Um, awesome. So a little bit of a Tokyo Drift call out there. I think it's weird. And maybe it's not, maybe I'm making a bigger deal of it, but that's kind of the whole point of podcast, making a big deal about things. But I feel like it's weird that the mom notices something yes. and not the dad. Like, it would have been great if the dad was like, oh, the equalizer is like wildly, or something like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, the movie sets up the dad as the guy to notice it, and then the mom notices it. And it's just like, well, all right. That, that leads into my final note. That's crazy oh. you said that, because that jumped out at me as like weird and kind of wrong or something. And then later the dad it like becomes best friends with his son when he finds out, you know, he got his Princeton contact laid and yeah. accepted and all. But like, so here's my final note and like my sort of egg theory overall about like this movie and stuff so like you know i i I feel like the egg is like uh represents joel in a lot of ways like his purity and stuff after he's like pulled off this kind of heist and like lost his virginity and like had sex with prostitutes all this kind of stuff right the mom comes back holds the egg and says there's a small crack inside my egg yep the egg is ruined and i think 
she's like talking about Joel. I, I don't know. My mind was like going nuts. I was like, this feels symbolic. I feel like this is all sort of trying to say something here at the end that the mom senses something is off about her son and he's never going to be the same again. I like that a lot. Like the little boy's all grown up. It just doesn't affect Joel. Like he he's taking the punishment now. You know what I'm saying? Like he's sort of like, I guess, more of a man, I guess, or just taking account for his actions and stuff, but that thought, like, wouldn't get out of my head during that scene, so I had to get it out. So then, Mike, how high were you when you watched this movie? (laughs) Extremely, but, I mean, you know... That's how you get like this insight sometimes. Uh, Walt and Brian, do either of you have any other notes to say about this movie before I do some more trivia and then we move on to a couple, uh, a game or two and some awards? I don't know. I'm very happy that I saw this movie. Again, like for, for its, like again, significant problems, I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought that it was like, it definitely had like a feminist take on some of this kind of stuff in the sense where everybody in this movie is a schmuck besides the women in this movie. And... I really enjoyed a lot of things about like the plot and how the boiler was always getting hotter. It felt a little bit formulaic in that way at times, but I really, I had a good time and and thank you for inviting me on to talk about it. I, I don't know if I would have seen this movie if I hadn't. Uh, and so thanks. This was a lot of fun. Brian, any other last thoughts or you have a, are we good to pro- progress? Good to go. Let's do it. So in an effort to make Tom Cruise look more quote unquote teenage, even though he's not too much older here, I think he was 20 instead of 18 or whatever. Uh, the producers had him work out a lot, lose 10 pounds, immediately stop working out, and then just start eating, like, McDonald's and other fatty foods so that he could have, like, the layer of baby fat. So I think, you know, it works. But he's also, you're trying to take two years off. Like, it's not it's not crazy, but, you know. Give him that teen physique. Uh, Timothy Hutton, Mike, who was in Taps, was the first choice for the role of Joel, Joel the, the Tom Cruise role, but he turned it down for another movie instead. Oh, do you know what movie? Daniel by Sidney Lumet. Okay. So, uh, Sharon Stone auditioned for the Lana role. Kim Basinger turned down the role of Lana because she didn't like the script. I just feel like they're linked in my brain for, like, 90s sex movies, sort mm-hmm. of. Like, adult, th- steamy thrillers. Yeah. Your I mean, favorite genre. Instinct. My favorite genre. Frank Sinatra was considered for the role of Guido, the Joey Pants role, but was deemed, oh. quote, too serious. My Come on. God. Right? <laughs> Old Mickey Blue Eyes, Frankie Blue Eyes. Richard Look, Dreyfus <laughs> was considered for the role of Guido. What? Yeah, I can see that. I uh, can see that. I see him like Jaws character, and it doesn't make sense. I mentioned before that Tom Cruise and Rebecca De Mornay started dating while they made the movie. Apparently, she also showed up on set with Harry Dean Stanton, who they had been dating at some point, too, so um, that made things a little bit awkward, awkward. on set. Shout out Twin Peaks. And like 150 other things. I know, but we're always yeah, shouting out Twin Peaks connections. Um, so I, I said I had some Sean Penn trivia, aside from the fact that he auditioned. Um, he is the passenger when Tom Cruise first takes the Porsche out for a joyride. Apparently he's in the passenger seat. Um, so he's just there as a favor. Because he was also in Chicago shooting a movie uh, called Bad Boys, not the Will Smith Bad Boys, <laughs> a different Bad Boys. Um, and so he and Tom Cruise would hang out because they were friends from the days of Taps. That's all the trivia I got. So, okay, let us move on to the most important game that we can possibly play, The Other Tom. Now, Walt, Brian has played this already, so I'm going to explain to you. Pretend for a moment that uh, reality had shifted and Tom Hanks was cast in this role of Joel Goodson instead of Tom Cruise. What would this movie be like if Tom Hanks were the lead? 
So there was that period in early Tom Hanks' career where he was a sexual being, and I think that at some point we all agree that stopped, that Tom Cruise continued to be a sexual entity in the minds of America, and Tom Hanks graduated from being a sexual being. Uh, like he was like, like you, that was as late as like big and all that, right? And, and he graduated into being like effectively like a, a single-celled organism in that way, where people just don't imagine him in a really serious romantic role and you can see it happen at times but like i think in general at this point in this career it would have been fine i think that we would have looked back on this hank's performance as being very out of line with what he later went on to do in the same way that we look back on this cruise performance as being extremely in line with what he wanted to do but in general i don't think it would have been too out of place yeah Absolutely. Well, Brian, what about you? You've uh, you've played this game a couple times by putting Tom Cruise in both seasons of Bosom Buddies. Um, how would you how would you think this movie would play out if Tom Hanks was in fact cast as Joel Goodson? Sunny, sunny, sunny. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> who is it? <laughs> it's really, really, really tough. I th- I just don't see it as a movie. I see it more as like I was saying before, like a comedy, like a, se- yeah. a early Tom Hanks sex comedy. I can't see his voice delivering some of these lines. Not that he's not capable of it. It just doesn't feel right to me. Well, yeah, Tom Cruise does have a smarminess, like when he, you know, at, at the end of the movie where it's cutting back and forth, again, a really cool scene, a really cool edited scene where he's, you know, sort of dealing with the aftermath of his actions and there's the kids at school. Cause he, so for being late to school, he gets suspended for five days and gets kicked no, out of his club? N- not just for being late, for threatening oh, the, the nurse. nurse. Okay. Yeah, no, that was... I, I forgot to mention that. <laughs> Super uncalled for. Like, don't put your hands on that lady. Yeah, no, no. Just take it like a man and take your detention and walk away. Yeah, But, you know, at the end, when they're cutting back and forth between his, his, the aftermath of what he did and also the kid still in the club, like, saying, I made $500. He has that whole, like, monologue that is basically, you know, I'm going to be fine because I made eight grand in one night, and sometimes you have to say, what the fuck, and whatever. And I do feel like that is, you know, not necessarily a thing that we've seen so far that Tom Hanks could deliver. So I agree with you there, Brian. So I have thought about this a little bit, about, like, the, like, Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise obviously had a very similar early career and i think that i figured it out which is basically i think that if you took the five meanest characters that tom hanks ever played they're still nicer than the five nicest characters that tom 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 cruise plays so in the sense that like even like the meanest and worst people played by hanks are still on the aggregate if you if you level it out better than than the cruise folks because the cruise folks are like even if they are like to get D and D E they're they're not lawful they're they're like chaotic neutral or, or or neutral or chaotic good whereas like the Hanks people tend to be kind of straight and narrow and yes Hanks has played villains once or twice but like if you kind of like do the averages then I think that the floor of cruelty with Hanks versus Cruz is just like the 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 Cruz folks are a little bit smarmier they're a little bit like you know meaner <laughs> oh are we including uh, Cloud Atlas in that list <laughs> that's the true true Mike. Mike, what about you? What if what if Tom Hanks was in this movie? How would it play out? I think it would be funnier, you know? Like, I think they'd probably lean more into that because I feel like at this time, Hanks is just much more comfortable doing that. Like, I've, I just feel like he's more natural with the comedy. When he got serious on Bosom Buddies or in the movies we've seen him in so far, especially as Pardu in Mazes and Monsters, sorry, Rona Joffe's Mazes and Monsters, that got real kind of somber and boring and, like, lost me for, for a while. I was like, this is just not good Hanks right now Um, so I don't know I don't think it would be as good I think we get you know we get his sort of 
boy meets girl movie soon with Splash, right? Like, it's everything but, like, the prostitution. It's, like, him meeting a beautiful woman and them, like, trying to, you know, be a couple and all no that spoilers. kind of stuff. I'm not. That's not a spoiler. I mean, I, there's a <laughs> there's, there's a romance huge, in a romance movie. Th- there's a huge twist on the back of the DVD. I'm not even going to mention. Well, there's one's but, a mermaid, right? Daryl Hannah's a mermaid. What? I know that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> okay, I, you forced me. I kind of know that because they want to reboot it. I think with Channing Tatum in the gender mm-hmm. swap, so he's going to be the merman, yeah. which I cannot wait for. But anyway, but that's see, that's my point though. It's like to get to this level of drama, it has to be in a I'm in love with a mermaid movie at this time in his career. Like I really think that's a great movie, and he pulls it off in there. So I just don't know if he had it if he could do a straight drama like this right now. He definitely gets there in his career, like, you know what I'm saying? He becomes a terrific dramatic actor. Yeah, just at this time, I just think, you know, kind of like, I guess, Brian was saying, like, it would just become more of like a, an American Pie of that time as opposed to something as serious, I think. You know, I'm going to take a real simple stance here. Uh, I think with Tom Hanks here, we're going to pull a bosom buddies and just have the downer of an ending. Oh, good. like yeah, he, good his, call. Just, his influence just direction. makes it. So, Walt, I don't know. Have you seen bosom buddies, Walt? Have you watched like uh, any episodes or all the episodes? Or I am not in any way familiar with bosom buddies. Um, I think I watched an episode of it once for a thing that I wrote about Tom Hanks, but I, uh, um, I have not done as much of a walkthrough. Please tell me more. What one thing that we learned because Brian was on both episodes about that, so the three of us have watched all thirty-seven episodes of Bosom Buddies. There are like more than a handful of episodes that are ostensibly just a comedy for you know twenty-two minutes, and then the last minute and a half, uh, it's Tom Hanks like, "I don't want to grow up. I'm I'm a, I'm afraid of being an adult," and it's just and that's yeah, how the episode what ends. Have I it's done like, with my life. It's like, wait, what? Like, like we're mortal. We've realized that. Yeah. Episode ends. Yeah, you almost expect them to find out that they're TV characters. Yeah. That, you know, there's nothing <laughs> It's like this for. existential dread in these movies, in, in these episodes. And I feel like based on that, we would have the, the, the weird sort of depressing ending here because that's mm-hmm. just kind of Hanks' thing, I guess, so far in, the in yeah. you know, between uh-huh. Bosom Buddies and also, you know, the Mazes and Monsters movie, the, the D&D movie where it starts oh as, like, gosh. this, like, you know, beautiful nerds playing D&D turns into him becoming se- uh, separated from reality. Trapped in his character, yeah. His thing so far has been uh, fun up front, real depressing in the end. So I think we would have had the downer of the ending here, which, you know... Just, what, it just he would have willed it into being. He, maybe he, maybe he would have sold it more. I don't know. Maybe the maybe it would have worked better for the test audiences. Who knows? Compare like what happens when Tom Cruise and Tom Hanks play a movie about a guy in a plane. Like it's Tom Cruise as as like a, the, like the sexy fighter pilot, and it's Tom Hanks as the like crusty but steady airline pilot who successfully saves an entire crew of people who fall into the Hudson River. Like that's exactly what they are. And I was, what I was going to say is that they both had to deal with geese. Goose and geese. Oh, good connection. Oh, dude. <laughs> Did you notice the other Cruise Hanks connection in this film? Uh, what is it? Well, as we all know, Tom Hanks dances on a piano in Big. I don't. I haven't seen Big yet, but go on. Come on. Whoa, whoa. That's not oh even a gosh. spoiler, okay? <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. No, my, my, my reaction was more for he hasn't seen the oh. movie yet. Not <laughs> I think that might have been the movie that I saw part of in school, but I definitely have not seen the whole thing. Isn't in The Night Before, not the Keanu Night Before, but the uh, Seth Rogen Night Before? Oh, yeah, I think they They, they copy that, but they, they do the, the Runaway, the Kanye song, right? So, so okay, so he dances on the piano, and then and then in the end here, Cruz runs on the piano, Yeah, we right? briefly get 
a foot on a piano in this. So yeah, crew's running. Connection. Okay, well, we've got one more game, and then we get the awards. In this world, you have won a walk-on role. You are going to stand league yourself as a cameo in this movie. Where do you put yourself in Risky Business? I think I would definitely be easy. Yes, no, easy. I would absolutely be the vagrant on the train um, who is pushed out of it, uh, much to his own chagrin, by Tom Cruise. Yes, I, I am the train drunk vagrant. I like that a lot. That is a perfect answer. Brian, can you top that? I was thinking about this the whole time I was watching, and I I could not figure it out. Kind of a similar thing, and it was mentioned before. I kind of want to be the the train conductor here. Oh, are we all going to be on the train? I don't know, maybe. And I want to kind of (laughs) let them know that, hey, I'm still here, guys. Please don't do this. Mike, are you going to play the gonorrhea on the seat? (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. No, no, no. I'm I'm going to be the world's best mechanic because oh. apparently the guy at the Porsche dealership like can fix that car oh, like overnight. No, yeah. yeah. Like he is a magician. That's me. Like I would be I'd be the man if that was me. Actually, I have a question for you guys. How what's the times the time frame of this movie? Aren't they just gone for the weekend? It's like There's Friday, no way this is a weekend. Okay, then it's like a week. Is it? Because I, I, he goes to school for a few days, and then they have the party over the weekend. And I'm sure they say it in those point-of-view shots, but I'm just, like, tuning out much like Joel is, you know, and, like, the intention yeah. of those shots. You know, Mike, I, I like that you sort of followed my footsteps, because remember, in Losing It, I was in the uh, the car, the auto body shop down That's in right. Tijuana. Well, I was trying to just act my age. Oh, sure, know, I, I get it. I <laughs> want to show up at the house party. Who would I be? There's, there's, I mean, there's so many, so many great scenes. I feel like there's a lot of opportunities to be, like, sort of exiting a scene, satisfied with my call girl business, but I don't know if I want to do that. Not again, anyway. Not again. You know, I've already do that enough in real life. Why would I want to, you know, I don't need to be in a movie for that. You can play the mattress renter. Do you remember the part of the movie where they rent a bunch of mattresses that then go on to be used in their impromptu pop-up bordello? I didn't know that you could rent a mattress. Oh. <laughs> oh, my God. I do like in the movie where, like, you know, she beckons him over, and the guy just, like, elbows him. He's like, get get over there and fuck your girl in my store. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> okay, here, here's what I would do. I would I would add a scene, and I am a cashier at a grocery store, and Tom Cruise comes up and just buys a hundred frozen dinners, and I'm like, what are you doing, kid? Nice. I thought you were going to go with the classic trying to buy condoms, but was too embarrassed. To oh, no. I think I think everybody's barebacking in this movie. Like, I don't think there's any safe sex. No. No. I think the girls are bringing them. I don't think they're... I don't know. I don't <laughs> think so. Mike, and losing it, they didn't really care about like the, the boys had to bring their own condoms. Like, you know, losing it, they were... It was fair game. I mean... Well, it's kind of funny how in losing it, Tom Cruise would not have sex with a prostitute, and in this one, it's like all he does. He can't stop. Yeah. <laughs> Just call her a girlfriend, and, you know, we're fine. Girlfriend experience? Ooh. Is this like an early version of Ooh, that? Riley Keough, my heart. Okay, so it's time for the awards, the awards section of the show. Best and the worst of Risky Business, maybe the Golden Oakleys. Mike, do we have another name? What is he singing? I guess it's just like a candlestick, right? Like, that he's singing into um, for the old-time yeah. rock and roll. That's, you know, that's not great, but... I mean... I'm going to say right ahead, Risky Business, aware. best film, nominated, best film. Okay. Do we want to nominate this for... What do you guys think about uh, best role? 
uh, I think that this is probably, at least at this point, one of his best performances. I think that you can see a lot of the, a lot of what you see on the screen here, I think absolutely comes in, in play down the line. I think he's kind of refining what it is to be a star. And I think he's working with a director who truly understands who he is. And I think that this is definitely one of the iconic performances. It, it, when he receives a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Academy or the Church of Scientology, this will be one of the early things in his role, you know? I do want to call out, I, I, I do agree with all that. I think that this is a, a role worthy of, you know, nominating. And we can always remove it later, Mike, if if, if it's overshadowed. Yeah. But the, the scene that I just watched was when they have the plan, like they go to Mr. Redstick at the mattresses and everything. But when they're at... Uh, Lana and Vicky's apartment, there's the egg before he brings it home, and the egg is sitting next to an open window on the windowsill. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, why don't you just put that egg away before... Yeah. Oh, man. And all the car keys, I'm just like, rookie. Um, we have a category, best fight. I don't know if there's really like a fight fight in this movie. I mean, he sort of runs away from Guido a lot, but I don't know if no. there's really a fight. No. So I do want to add uh, best car scene, or best chase or whatever, because oh, we, we do have the running from the cops, Marines, and Mexicans and losing it. So Oh, that was a crazy scene where he just opened fires in the middle of town and everyone scatters. Escaping from Guido and Risky Business. Um, nominated this for sure for best theme song slash soundtrack slash score. Oh, yeah. Um, best dance scene, of course. Uh, Old time rock and roll. Yeah. This is an interesting one. Best cruise outfit wardrobe. Well, glasses and cigarette? Well, uh, yes, but... Underwear and buttoned-up t-shirt? <laughs> well, I was going to ask, do you have a best sunglasses category? Because this is a man who has innovated so many fashion styles and sunglasses. We do now. Wayfarers, right? Then you get the Ray-Bans, as you mentioned. Do you have a category for best stunt? We do have a best stunt. We're gonna get. We're gonna get there. Yes, absolutely. I wanted to ask you about that. Was that him standing on the dock when it went down? It looked I don't like know. one of his first early stunts or something. There wasn't anything in the uh, trivia, but it, it seems like, I mean, knowing that he does everything in the Mission Impossible movies, like probably. So the the one thing, the one trivia thing I saw on IMDb was that the sales of the Wayfarers, these these glasses that he was wearing, were real low. And then this movie came out, and sales went up by two thousand percent because people were like, "I want to look like that." Like it feels like, you know, Mike, when we play on the Joe Two podcast, and we do the like the Google game, like the autocomplete, where we'll say like, you know, Ryan Gosling, the Ides of March, and then what does it look like? And it's always. As Joe has pointed out, people who want their boyfriend to look like Ryan Gosling and guys who want to look, Ryan, look like Ryan Gosling. So it's like hair, sunglasses, uh, workout, uh, shirt. And so I think <laughs> here, you know, Tom Cruise sunglasses would probably be like an autocomplete for a bunch of movies. So yeah, absolutely. absolutely. He must have increased, you know, the sales at Sunglasses Hut. Sunglass Hut, I think, <laughs> like 30 times. Trips to the mall way up. Uh, is there a line or a freakout in this movie that we want to nominate? I mean, he freaks out. I feel like he freaks out. Like, I feel like he's kind of freaking out the whole movie. And definitely when he's late and he's threatening the nurse. Like, that's the main oh. freak out, I feel. I'll say threatens a nurse in risky business. That's cool. I mean, not cool, but, you know, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the, as a, just a line, not a freak out. I do like the final line of the movie, I think. My name is Joel Goodson. I deal in human fulfillment. I grossed over $8,000 in one night. Time of your life, huh, kid? And, like, that's kind of icky and gross, but also, like, that's this movie, you know? So I, Yeah. I like when he stands up and he says, looks like Illinois State. Like, that's kind of funny, but that's not really the line. I, mean, yeah. I think the line is you got to say fuck it or whatever that was. What the fuck, yeah. Most athletic feat, do we want to say... Catching the egg? Catching the egg is pretty or, great. Or sex in that chair, because I'm telling you, like, someone's oh, going to get hurt. I do want to write down... I want to write down uh, best sex scene. That's definitely for sure. Around the house... 
with Rebecca De Mornay. Hey, nominate sex on the train, you coward. On the train, in parentheses, you coward, says Walt. Around the house with Rebecca De Mornay sounds like a like a you know like a fix it up it show. Fix oh, it up show I would watch it. But best athletic scene, so catching the egg in Risky Business, or at the end of Risky Business. Best love story, worst love story, eh. It's not really a love story. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I think we're going to get, like, real ones down the line. And my last question, unless we have, there's another category that we, we have not invented yet, but do we want to nominate anyone, specifically maybe Rebecca De Mornay, for best or worst non-Cruise actor role performance? Do you think, because so far already in the female category, we have... Diane Lane as Sherry Valance in The Outsiders. Shout out High School Slumber Party. And we have Shelley Long as Kathy in Losing It. Hmm. I think I think she's better than the Shelley Long. Okay. I mean, let's put her in it because like I was actually really kind of struck by how nuanced she yeah. was playing this. Like I couldn't you know what I'm saying? Like times I really believed her, other times I couldn't believe her and you know, I really it was hard to get a read on her, and I think that's good acting like i think that was very interesting of her as a character to be like what is she what are her true intentions and yeah. i really couldn't uh you know she is, she is mercurial question question have you ever thought about like splitting the categories up into best love interest and then like best non-romantic female lead what we learned by doing the charlie Theron podcast which i am thrilled to say that you and michael will be on uh the flarsky episode i'm going to call it flarsky Ooh, even though coming it's soon even though it's called you know long shot it is flarsky uh, what we learned from Watch a Throne is that because of the, the the inherent sexism of Hollywood, when she is the star of a movie, there's generally not another woman in the movie. Um, it's just like, she that's our quota, we got the one, there we go. So in that kind of situation, we couldn't really break it into different kind of categories because we were just sort of grasping at straws to fill out a category of just like five strong women. Yeah, we cut down like on half of our categories, I think, by the end of that run as well. So like we really tried to stretch and explore like new interesting categories and things that would be fun to track and stuff, but it got a little tedious and then, yeah, hard to sort of fill an entire like four or five um, like examples. Because I do think that that's something worth noting, but I feel like if we do that best romantic partner or whatever the the other category kind of won't exist all right my nominee for best non-cruise role um is jerry tulos tulos jerry tulos uh he played derelict on train and he's america's sweetheart i mean not since bum on a park bench in back to the future part one has there been a more memorable <laughs> movie transient that oh, comes man. <laughs> the final question and i think the answer is yes briefly does tom cruise run in this movie. The only time I noticed it was when the car starts starts rolling down the hill, he runs after to see if he can catch it, stop it, whatever. Not a lot of running in this movie, but a little bit, briefly. I caught that little sort of like kickstart before he started running over the furniture to catch the egg. Mm. I'm not sure if that, that counts enough. Yeah, a little bit. He doesn't have a mile and a half run like he does he in Fallout. Full but, stride. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, again, no movie really does that, but... I can I cannot wait to get to those Mission Impossible movies, but we have so much good stuff between now and then, including the next episode. We have all the right moves, which Mr. Brian Rodriguez will be back for, um, be back. and then he is gone from this podcast forever. Thank God. You don't you don't know that. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm kidding. I also we love having you around, of course, Brian and Walt. You Good will kid. be back in a little bit for volunteers on Hanks. Yes. And then again for Big. Oh, we talked about Big, but you'll be back on Big. You'll nice. be on a couple other movies coming up later. So Yeah, I'm, I'm so thrilled to come back, you guys. This is always a ton of fun. It always takes me to places that 
I hadn't been before, and it's always a real pleasure to come on. So um, I'm really looking forward to coming back. Well, thank you so much for both of you for joining us. And next week, our Tom Hanks episode, if you want to listen ahead, get ahead, is three episodes of the show Family Ties, which are all on CBS All Access. So if you still haven't burned your seven-day trial to watch Star Trek Voyager or Discovery or whatever Star Trek shows on there, apologies to all Star Trek fans out there. Uh, Seven-day free trial, CBS All Access, two episodes in season one, one episode in season two. Go check out Family Ties, Tom Hanks. Walt, please plug Numlock News and whatever else you want to. This comes out after the Oscars, so nobody... Are Actually, are you going to have a... I'm sure you will, but I guess the question is when. Um, a, a post-mortem on the Oscars? Yeah, so we uh, we did the Oscars predictions, and that's you can find at awards.substack.com. That's a nice little pop-up newsletter that I do with uh, Michael Domenico from Not Her Again. But my main work is at... Um, I'm, I'm insider senior editor for data and my uh, my primary like personal uh, business is I have this newsletter called Numlock News and it's a daily morning news brief full of numbers in the news and you can find that at either Numlock like the key on the keyboard um, numlock.substack.com or just at uh, numlock.news that'll navigate you there or it's in my Twitter bio which is at Waltiki but yeah no um, if you want any of the awards actually the awards coverage isn't fast but yeah so I'm also on uh, Michael Domenico's podcast not her again so you can catch that there um, I think he's going to be on the podcast coming up soon, actually, right? He will. He will be on Far and Away Cruise Club coming up in about uh, three oh. months, three or four months. Cruising, cruising Kidman. Cruise and Kidman. Yep. Go get the Numlock News newsletter for free, and then, you know, if you pay for it, five bucks a month, just give Walt a couple, you know, let him buy a cup of coffee every once in a while. And then sometimes you'll get an email that says, hey, gift some subscriptions to your friends. And I gifted all three of mine away, and now I got an email for more. So it's, I'm just, I'm paying it forward with uh, mathy newsletters. And again, not to keep blowing smoke up your newsletter ass, but uh, I, what I like about your newsletter is that most of it's free. Like the, the five, the, the, the paying for it, you get the long form Sunday thing, but like, the daily stuff and everything is free, and the award stuff is free. So, like, there's a lot of stuff you just give away. So, why not, you know, pay an artist for his art and, you know, read about the sagas of Movie Pass, which now just got delisted. So, that's, you know, very important. Brian, why don't you plug uh, High School Summer Party? Because Fridays are for fun, after all. Yep, Fridays are for fun. After you listen to this show, listen to High School Slumber Party. Obviously, we just talk about high school films. We have a good mm-hmm. time. I ask people what sleeping bad that they'll bring on. Mike, you've been on a bunch of times. Joe, you've been on a bunch of times. Oh, yeah. Would love, love to have you on, Walt. That would be very cool. Oh, man, Brian, I would love to come on to your podcast. This sounds like a ton of fun. I, I, I would really enjoy doing that. <laughs> Oh, sweet. Awesome. High School Slumber. But what, you said this is coming out next Friday? Yeah, so last week was your, uh, we need to talk about Kevin episode. So yes, what is, are. what comes out today? Today is the perfect score. Oh. And our guest is Erica Smith. She was on our Saved episode. Oh, from Bust Magazine. Yeah, oh, no longer at Bust, though. Oh, formerly at Bust Magazine. She's at Refinery 20. Nine, twenty-nine. Yeah, cool. <laughs> very, very cool. And you know, I, I do want to say eventually, if you want to, if you can't get enough of people stealing tests, I think at some point you'll probably do this. But Bad Genius, which I think is a Thai thriller, high school thriller, is a great cheating the SATs uh, movie. So check that out yeah. too. And then Brian, if you want to keep in the genius sort of titles, Real Geniuses. Um, with Val Kilmer. I'd always be on that episode. And then if you want uh, more Val Kilmer, come back for Top Gun and Top Gun Two. Is he die? I don't remember. We'll get to it on Cruise Club. So for all things Cruise Club and Hanks for the Memories and High School Slumber Party and all 24 of our shows on the network, you go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us. 
run at cageclub.me. Oh, we have a Patreon. Check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash cageclub if you want to control what we watch and just say hi over there. I try to post stuff over there that I don't post anywhere else, so just go check out that community. I found out today, Mike, that we have someone watching our Patreon, but not contributing. So I guess they're following the blog, essentially, but not pay. I don't know. Whatever you want to do, patreon.com slash cageclub. Come back in next week for Family Ties on Hanks for the Memories, and come back in two weeks in this feed for All the Right Moves. Oh, I need to guess. We need to guess. Mike, have you seen All the Right Moves? I have not. I have not. I don't remember how we do this. Are we guessing Family Ties or are we guessing All the Right Moves? What do we do? I don't know. This is all it's new, new, and we're doing the double. I think what we should do is guess the next one for the show that we're on. So the next cruise. Yes. we didn't guess on the last Hanks. Oh, oh, no, you did. Yes, you did. You guessed this on Hanks. So okay, we well, I think we should change Hanks it up, though. Cruise. I think. Okay. So let's guess. So we're just not going to guess Family Ties because that's a TV show that doesn't really matter. So, okay. Sorry, Brian. Uh, so All the Right Moves. I have moves, a theory, but okay. okay. I'm all guessing right is going to be a precursor to Step Up where Tom Cruise mm. goes to a school. He's a bad kid and has to be uh, taught to love through the art of dance. Okay. I think it's more of like a Charlie Bartlett kind of thing where he, like... <laughs> runs the school and is like almost like what was that like hitch you know where like he's got all the answers but it's like a teen version of that i think it's like that um okay and uh maybe he finds true love and like needs to sort of stop playing himself so hard and like settle down okay i feel like teen hitch would kind of work right that could totally work like that's like a netflix movie just waiting to happen teen hitch would absolutely work i feel like teen hitch probably already exists in movies that we're just not thinking about, but matchmakers. Brian, are there matchmaking high school movies? I'm sure. Of course. Teen Hitch? Teen Witch? Teen, I was going to say, it rhymes with Teen Witch. So that's cool. <laughs> we'll come back uh, next week for Family Ties. Come back in two weeks for All the Right Moves, which is maybe about what we said, maybe not. Who knows? Run at cageclub.me. Send us a note. Just say hi. Win a prize pack if you email us. So that's not a joke. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Walt Hickey of Numlock News and Brian Rodriguez of the High School Slumber Party Podcast. And we'll see you in two weeks right here on Cruise Club. Just stay-